Please welcome Jeff Gauger. I have two short readings this morning. The first is Psalm 104, verses 1 through 5 from the Hebrew Bible. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. And here's the line I'd like you to listen really closely to and remember. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. And secondly, uh, an excerpt from the opening lines of On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres by Nicholas Copernicus. The great majority of authors, of course, agree that the earth stands still at the center of the universe and consider it inconceivable and ridiculous to suppose the opposite. But if the matter is carefully weighed, it will be seen that the question is not yet settled and therefore by no means to be regarded lightly. When uh, Barbara Jarrell, our minister, asked me to speak several weeks ago, I think she had in mind that I would address, address some topic related to free speech, social media, and our broken national politics. Um, I pondered on that theme for a long while, and I just could not come up with something that I felt had gelled enough in my mind to share or that fit with uh, my Unitarian Universalist faith. Uh, it's not to say there's not, that's not rich fertile ground for that. I'm just not ready to address that topic personally. So with apologies to Barbara, I have gone in a totally <laughs> different direction. You never do that. <laughs> <laughs> you never do that. <laughs> never do what they're told, right? <laughs> so Nicholas Copernicus, was by all outward signs an unlikely revolutionary. He was born in 1473 in what today is Poland, the son of a copper merchant who died while Copernicus was still a boy. His uncle, a Roman Catholic bishop, helped Copernicus ease into a career in the church, not as a priest, but as a canon, a sort of uber-manager who handled earthly tasks for a bishop. He proved exceptionally competent in this work. He led a busy but comfortable and in many ways very conventional life. It was Copernicus's hobby and his ability to think unconventionally that would distinguish him and make of him a role model as we grope to recognize and shed the blankets of received wisdom that blinker our vision today. In a few minutes, Andrew Lawrence will help me in a dramatic reading about Copernicus from Davos Sobel's book, 
a more perfect heaven, how Copernicus revolutionized the cosmos. She's written a biography with a twist. In the middle, like the cream in an Oreo cookie, is a fictional account of the last years of Copernicus's life presented as a play. Before the reading, though, some context. Copernicus practiced astronomy and mathematics in his spare time. In an age before telescopes, he studied the sky, measuring as precisely as his crude instruments would allow the moon and the visible planets and stars. He did so over many decades, and he came to some startling conclusions. That the sun and the planets and all the stars do not join the moon in orbiting the earth. That the earth and all the planets orbit the sun, and that the earth is moving. We can scarcely conceive how radical was Copernicus's idea. For more than a thousand years, back to the ancient Greeks and probably before that, learned people in the Western tradition had taught that the earth was at the center. Their assumption was based in part on the limits of perspective, on the difficulty of perceiving correctly based on observations made from Earth itself without telescopes. Yet the Greeks, <clears throat> yet the Greeks and even Copernicus's contemporaries knew the observed data didn't square perfectly with the notion that the Earth was at the center. So they invented explanations, which often involved imagining solid disks to hold the sun, the planets, the moon, and the stars in place around the Earth. Copernicus, in seeing a different cosmos, abandoned these centuries of accepted knowledge. He also risked angering the powers that be, Roman Catholic authorities and philosophers of stature. The assumption of an Earth-centered universe had come to fit the Christian conception of humans as the crowning achievement of creation. Where else would humans be except at the center of it all? For biblical authorities, popes and bishops and philosophers and professors sometimes invoke Psalm 104, verse 5. He set the earth on its foundation. It can never be moved. Copernicus, remember, was born in 1473. By the 1510s, he'd come to his new idea for the cosmos. It was the same decade that a renegade priest named Martin Luther committed the first acts of what would become the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church soon would be at war with Luther's ideas. Yet Copernicus held his idea close. He explained in a letter to confidants, he told a few fellow trusted mathematicians. Even so, in time, his idea became something of an open secret known by scholars and even appreciated by a few Catholic cardinals, but known because it was talked about, not because Copernicus had officially published anything. It was gossipy stuff, unthreatening, merely a thought exercise. Copernicus resisted repeated encouragement to publish openly, even as he set to work on a book, a book that it's largely believed he completed by the early 1530s. Even then, he didn't publish until a mathematics professor named Georg Joachim Redicus came into his life. 
Redicus had traveled Europe to study with famous astronomers, and his travels brought him in 1539 to Copernicus's home in Poland, which was geographically closer to the influences of Martin Luther than it was to the centers of Catholic centers of power in Rome. Redicus, who was still in his early 20s, was a professor on leave from the University of Wittenberg, and he was, gasp, a Lutheran. Officially to the Pope and to Copernicus's bishop boss, an apostate. Redicus, like many learned people at the time, studied the stars and planets in part because he believed they could predict the future. He believed his own astrological reading foretold an early death. Perhaps that knowledge emboldened his approach to Copernicus. Over a couple of years, he studied with the older man and he pressed Copernicus to publish. Pressed and pressed and pressed. By 1542, he had succeeded. The two men prepared a final manuscript and Radicus went off to Nuremberg to supervise publication. Copernicus's book, written in Latin, entitled and translation on the revolutions of the heavenly spheres, was published in 1543. In the end, despite his timidity about publishing, Copernicus didn't suffer much scorn. It helped that through luck or genius or diplomacy, somehow the Pope was persuaded to add his dedication to the book. It also helped that Copernicus died age 70 in the very year that the book was published. His book was criticized by Martin Luther, among many others, and Roman Catholic authorities would ban it, but only nearly 75 years later, it would be another man, an Italian named Galileo Galilei, the inventor of the telescope, who would ultimately suffer the awesome weight of ecclesiastical punishment some 150 years later. As Andrew and I read for you now, consider Copernicus was bold in his thinking, but timid about publishing. Why was he timid? Out of, out of concern for himself or parental concern for his beautiful idea? Doesn't matter. And which is more important, the thinking or the sharing? What of Redicus, who embraced Copernicus's idea and who lived a Lutheran among Roman Catholics as he midwifed it to publication, but who also devoted himself to a conventional wisdom that we today call astrology. Astrology. Radicus, by the way, lived to age 60. And lastly, what received wisdoms might Copernican boldness in our thinking help us to shatter? Even if we never mount a soapbox or publish a book or a tweet to a wider audience. And now, Andrew as Redicus uh, and I as Copernicus, these were roles chosen because of our relative ages, not our relative intelligence. Uh, in the first short scene, Redicus seeks to persuade Copernicus to publish. In the second, Redicus advises Copernicus 
to ensure that the book is well received. Why haven't you published this? You know why. Not the theory, but just these sections. Not the I don't want to divide the work that way and pretend I don't know what I know. All right, then. The whole thing. Publish it off. Why not? Now you sound like the crazy one. No, this is, this should be published. It would cause a sensation. I will be laughed off the stage. It's all in the way you present it. Certainly, could you not start off by insisting that the earth moves? But I would. I would have to say that. No, that would break everyone's confidence. You can say it later. First, you show them all these in order. Where's that? The first thing you show them. Here. Here's a perfect example for this part. It explains how you approach the equation for each of the problems. My God, people have been trying to solve that for... No, really, it's not for publication. I think Pythagoras had the right idea when he kept his secret numbers a secret. He never divulged them to anyone except his kinsmen and friends, and even then only by word of mouth, never in writing. He was afraid someone would steal his ideas. Oh. You will have to you will have your name on the title page of your book. That's not what he was afraid of, believe me. I know how he felt. He wanted to protect his beautiful ideas from ridicule. Do you know those books I brought you? You want them back? I said you could have them. No, listen, he's very good. The best printers of scientific works anywhere in Germany, in all of Europe, probably. If I show them in Spanish. I told you, I've decided not to publish. You can't keep this to yourself. It isn't right. Secrecy has no place in science anymore. Easy for you to say. You would not face the scorn that I have to fear. The mathematicians. Not just the mathematicians, but church people will oppose me. After you publish it, if someone disagrees. If someone disagrees? If? If someone disagrees. Let them publish a counter-argument. Then you may come back to repeat his counter-argument. And you go on like that, back and forth. That's how learned men make good use of God-given principles. <laughs> it isn't even finished. There's enough material here. To no, several sections still need work. Show me. And the second scene. I still say you, you make the case too quickly. You've got to work up to it. Roach the idea slowly. I don't want to pretend the book is something it's not. You can't just push the sun to the center of the universe on page one. That's the whole point. Yes, but you still have to build up to it. The way I tried to show you, you can't just pluck the lantern of the universe for God's sake and place in the eternal perfect heavens and shove it into the hellhole at the bottom of the world. Later on, I explain why. That's move, move the whole thing later. They'll turn against you. They'll turn against you if you don't. They'll be clinging to dear, to dear old life on a mobile. Because of its earthiness, because of all the change and death and decay, if you want to put the sun there in the midst of it all, you better do it slowly. You mean I haven't proven it mathematically? I didn't say that. But that's what you mean. If the proofs were stronger, you wouldn't be trying so hard to make it sound palatable. I want them to hear you out, to see what you've done. I'm begging you, invite them into this new world. Don't force it on them. Maybe it isn't ready after all. Maybe this was all a big mistake. No, no, don't say that. I don't know what made me think I could... You mustn't lose heart. You've got to take a few stones. You've got to leave a few stones unturned. Something for others to come after you to do. You've given us so much to build on. Trust me, Father, in a hundred years from now, astronomers will still be reading your book. And you, Joachim? I will have read it a hundred times. What will you do after we finish here? After, I will take the book to Nuremberg. I'll watch over the printer to keep him on his toes. I'll after that. I don't have to worry about anything after that. 
You'll go back to Wittenberg to your teaching? No, Father. By the time, by then I'll be... What? There's no after for me after that. Don't you remember? By this time next year, when you turn Saturday into the great conjunction, my time will be... You can't still believe that. Nothing in your theory gives me a way out. <laughs> you can't just resign from life, acquiesce to some benighted... I, could live a hundred years. You have no idea what the future holds for you. Wait and see what happens to your career when Shona and the rest of them read my acknowledgments to you. Of course to you. Oh no, you must disclose my role in this. You think I wouldn't thank you publicly for, for all you did to help? My name must not appear in your book. It would taint the whole thing. No, you must have others you can thank without inflaming the ears of the church. Even the bishop knows how much you've Luther? I have a new plan for the dedication that, that you will write to the real power. You mean Duke Albert? No. The king? No. No one from the government. This dedication must act, must acknowledge their higher power, someone in the church. Not the bishop. No. Who then? The Pope? Yes. <laughs> I was joking, Yakum. I am perfectly serious. <laughs> His Holiness. Paul Pontifex, Maximus himself, to protect you from those backbiters who will bend chapter and verse to his purposes and try to condemn your theory. Even though we both know there's nothing irreverent in your book, nevertheless, there will be a danger that someone will. But His Holiness. The mere mention, mention of his name will let the book air powerful authority. It might even give people the impression that he had commissioned you to write it. <laughs> he would never do that. Still, it might appear that he had. What could he possibly have to say about astronomy? He doesn't have to say anything. You simply dedicate the book to him. I couldn't even do that without his express permission. Then we must get his permission. He has the troubles of the world on his shoulders. He's gone and excommunicated the King of England. Even if we could get to him. He's consumed with the final solution to the Lutheran problem. I'm sorry, Joachim. <laughs> Forgive me. I have no love for him either. To me, he's the Antichrist. But for your book, trust me, Father. You dedicate your studies to him, and you prove to everyone that you do not run away from judgment, even by the highest authority. Thank you. We are blanketed in conventional wisdoms that were blind to see failures in those some of those wisdoms themselves. I'd ask you, as I ask myself, to keep our eyes and our minds and our hearts open to the notion that they might be wrong, somebody else might be right, just as happened when for hundreds of years humans placed the earth at the center of the universe. Thank you.